Hey, and welcome to the show. Thank you for joining. I hope you enjoy your stay. So yesterday, yesterday, I had a group of men over, over to my house. I have these men's groups occasionally. I think it's important. I think it's important to gather as guys, as men, and just have a way to bounce off ideas, to talk about what's going on in your life, not with the intention of it being fixed or there being any solve, but just sometimes by sharing in a group, in a group setting, uh, you can learn a lot. I learn a lot by talking. That's part of the reason uh, I'm doing this show. And when I'm able to talk in in a group and speak to a group, oftentimes I'll just become more aware of what I'm saying. And when thoughts become words, when I put them out there, there's a lot of clarity in that too. Some things will make sense in my mind, but as soon as I start saying it out loud, it's like, "Ah aha, oh, yeah, or no. I'll find myself backpedaling, you know, because I'll see the holes in what I'm saying while I'm saying it. And gathering as men, like, there's no doubt in my mind that there's a special dynamic between men and women. Groundbreaking things. But just just by it only being men, us us all being able to just kind of yeah, bond or empathize through gender without you know, without there being undertones of sexuality or undertones of us wanting something like physical from each other. Um, and men need it, you know, this is, this is an important platform for me is shit. I'm about to talk about misogyny, but it's not, it's a it's a fresh hot it's a it's a fresh perspective on that like in my in my mind and in reality okay let, i'm let's start with objective reality and then we can build like metaphysical and psychological things off of that but women like creation sexuality Women are far superior than men sexually. And this is not an opinion. Women are an abundant section sexual creature. Right? I, I see women as like an ocean. Um a like a vast body of water in terms of sexuality. Whereas men are like a flame, right? And a flame, it needs to be fed. 
constantly to stay lit. And if you use all your energy at once, the flame will burst and usually fizzle out. So the sexual experience, the creative experience, it was like, it was shown to me in this book, um, picturing women sexuality as like a call, like a pot of boil of water and the men is the flame. So if you use all your fuel at once, expend a lot of fire, like that five minute blitzkrieg style of sexuality, uh, the, the water won't get warm. It'll, it won't bubble over. It won't boil, but even a small flame sustained over a long enough period of time, will get the water to eventually, uh, to boil or to bubble or to move and to gyrate. And going back to the superior superiority thing, it's, it, that might like hurt, uh, if miss, if misinterpreted, like, it's not that because, okay, for example, like men can have more sexual partners. They can, men can literally create more children, right? It takes nine months. A woman can create a baby every nine months ish. Now in that same nine months, a man can impregnate thousands of women. So in the way of creating more children, if that's the goal, then I guess men, uh, are superior in that sense. But I'm talking about the actual sexual physical interaction there's a lot more work that men need to do. There's just a lot more work that men need to do to um, participate or to, you know, be good or be uh, or to have a mutually fun, beneficial sexual experience. Uh, there's a more of an effort on men's side to retain. For me, it's been about retaining. I've never, I haven't been a guy that even when I was getting drunk and stuff, like coming has not been a problem for me. It's been the opposite. I've had to like learn how to retain because of wanting to come too fast. And wanting even seems like a harsh word because I definitely didn't want to, you know, bust in 30 seconds, a handful of times. Definitely didn't want to. Definitely felt the shame of that afterwards. Even occasionally apologized. But nevertheless, it's something that I've either trained myself through pornography, through trying to get to the ejaculation, like craving the finish line instead of enjoying the journey. Um, so I'm still like 31 and difficult sometimes to retain like to stop myself from from coming and I genuinely work on it like I worked on it out of shame like in college I suppose by the way I, I didn't start like sexual relationships into until college not by choice but through lack of confidence and then lack of willingness to, you know, be rejected or to 
even try. You know, I, I wasn't able to talk to a woman to start a sexual relationship. I did have one relationship in high school, but we didn't have sex. Um, her choice. And so I didn't start, I didn't start until college. And then when I realized that I can get excited too fast and, and kind of lose myself, you know, I wanted that to change. I wanted to go all night till the break of dawn, you know, like the songs, listen to R and B growing up. So all night long seemed appealing to me. And it still does in some ways. Um, but all night long only happens when I can retain my semen by choice, you know, when I can actually work through it. So maybe this episode is about, uh, some ways to, um, some ways I'm learning. Definitely haven't mastered this. Definitely haven't mastered semen retention, uh, non-ejaculatory sex. Uh, but it's a practice and I'm, and I'm on the path. And a lot of things that I'll be referencing, um, there's two books in particular, The Multi-Orgasmic Man. Um, there's also The Multi-Orgasmic Woman and The Multi-Orgasmic Couple, uh, which I haven't read either of those. And then there's another book, uh, The Tao of Longevity, Sex, and Health. Um, maybe I'll drop the, uh, the book title and author in the comment section or something. So the first technique that I've been using to retain, to not come too fast, um, it kind of starts, does it start in my mind? Does it start with the intention to do so? Maybe. But from a technique perspective, breath. And second speed um and then third there's like muscle contractions and fourth would be like bringing my awareness to various parts of my body so the number one breath is usually deep breathing something about like I guess maybe this is tied into autoerotic asphyxiation, like choking yourself to create a better ejaculatory experience, which I haven't done, but I do practice jujitsu and I've never come during jujitsu. Um, but I have noticed that if I'm kind of holding my breath or if I'm tense in the body and I'm tense in the breath that I can come faster. This all might be psychological, by the way. I'm willing to explore that. And there's, there's tons to be said about the psychosomatic, uh, fucking existence, but controlling my breath. Number one, breathing into my belly, even maybe even retaining it on purpose, fully oxygenated, slow exhales tied into breath is also making noise. If I'm anything that basically inspires discomfort, uh, will make me come faster. 
So if I feel like I can't make noise, I, if if I'm uncomfortable in that respect, like it's not, you know, it's not likely. If I feel heard, I don't know what that is. What is that? Maybe you just got, I, you know, back in the day when cave people, you just had to get your nuts off when you could. You know, it wasn't, we didn't have the luxury of imbibing in the pleasure of the experience as much. So being able to make noise, being able to even tone and then being comfortable enough with the person that you're having sex with that you can like try, you know, try out making noises, try dirty talk, but that being able to speak and emote, um, and moan and tone during sex, uh, has been a way for me to harness my energy and to basically control, uh, uh, my ejaculation. So breathing and toning, breathing and noise making are kind of, are kind of number one. And then number two is probably what people start, try first is just slowing down. Maybe even pulling out and giving myself a break. You know, if you want to keep the pleasure flowing, maybe I, you know, I pull out and give some head, you know, just to give the excitement the sensation in my genitals, a break chance to air out. Um, it's a big one. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes when she's getting excited, um, she might even want you to go faster, thrust deeper. And I'll have to resist that if I know it's going to make me come before I want to. Or if I know if I can prolong the experience so that we can both experience more pleasure um, or enjoy it more, um, I'll have to like say no. Or I'll have to just, you know, even if there's frustration, like I'll put it like whatever. Like go faster, put it back in. I have to be like, it's not time. So speed, number two. Um. Number three, I think I said bringing my attention and my awareness other places. So sometimes I can be so genital focused that this one's kind of a catch 22 because sometimes if I'm trying to avoid, like if I'm, if I'm trying not to come, then what kind of sexual experience is that anyway? If it's, you know, prolonged, like, and is it worth it? But so sometimes I have to go deeper into the sensation. I have to like, oh, like take all my awareness and bring it into my genitals and be like, this is what, it, you know, this is what it fully feels like. And by like fully going into the experience, then I can manage like my sensation or I can kind of like throttle the uh, excitement and then the ejaculation. Or sometimes I'm hype, you know, I'm too focused on my genitals and this and the pleasure and just by diverting my attention, by scanning my body, like to my feet, lungs, diaphragm, anything, maybe even starting to use my hands and like kind of feeling into, into their skin a little bit, um, diversifying the pledge, the erogenous zone. I think women can have an erogenous zone head to toe type of experience. And I think men just by nature have a, their erogenous, our erogenous zone is just a little bit more centralized. 
And so I, I try to diversify that as another tactic or another means to enjoy the sexual experience. And, and really that's what it's about, you know, enjoyment. It is the most, it's like all of creation, right? It's the most, it's the most beautiful interaction that we can have uh, with one another. Maybe not, maybe the love of like a ma, like a mother, you know, is more pure or something, but it's a, you know, there's a reason sex is what it is and it's a powerful creative force just to say the least about it. So having reverence and then being able to enjoy it, um, seems to be a, you know, just as good of a practice as any. So like, as far as the psychosomatics of it, basically any ex, any additional pressure I'm putting on myself, if I can mitigate that or just see it in a different way, um, like the best sex is when I'm most comfortable. So if I can like build that comfort, like if it's a new partner, which it hasn't been for a, for a long time. Yeah, I think about that though. That I mean, there are so many beautiful women in the world, and like, I, some days it, it genuinely feels like I'm literally trying to find the end of beautiful women. I feel like I've seen so many on Instagram, TikTok, um, Pornhub. Like, I feel like I've seen them all. And then every day I'm reminded, nope, there's just more beautiful people. And that's a good thing probably, but it's a little frustrating because it's such a hook. Like novelty is such a hook for me. Like wanting the, a new sexual, sexual experience. And in my head and heart, I know like what takes, what goes into building trust and making a sexual relationship good is the comfort and that comfort takes a little bit of time for me. And yet I still crave that novelty. I still crave like just, I guess a new experience. I, I don't really know how to unpack that besides, you know, what I default to is, well, biology, you know, we want to procreate with the most diverse population to ensure that our genes survive. Fine, fine. But not being overly materialistic, I would like to understand the mental, spiritual, emotional of it. So maybe I don't have to like, maybe it doesn't have to be so much. It doesn't have to take so much time, pretty much. I'd spend, I don't know, a couple hours a day on the phone. That's including like making videos like this uh, editing, editing takes a long time and then browsing, like searching and consuming and the consumption aspect. It's just some, some days I'll just look at a hundred, a hundred beautiful women. And it's really the same thing, same poses, you know, bodies are all unique in their own way, but 
you know, bodies are bodies too. And it's not like I love these people for who they are. I'm just basically mentally masturbating, looking at these uh, beautiful pictures and like painting these fantasies of me actually being able to interact with these people, which is highly unlikely. I'm, you know, I don't get out that much. (laughs) And even when I do see these beautiful women in public, like these fantasies in my head of me going up and like creating conversation and, and being heard and being seen and being liked and then me liking them back. Like I don't even initiate why. I mean, I I do have a girlfriend and that's out of respect for her partially, but also it's, it's a bit of insecurity as well. It's just like, I still have the fear of being, I guess, rejected or, uh, no, I mean, I, maybe if I was single and I had a, uh, some reason, um, maybe it would be different at this point. Maybe I, I care just a little bit less about that, or maybe I'm just more comfortable um, approaching people, not planning what to say, but being able to you know, listen and respond so that it's a, a good conversation or it's a conversation that lets me know, oh, this is prob we're probably not on the same wavelength for a while and it's probably there's nothing here so making the sexual sexual experience comfortable like set and setting (laughs) is probably a good idea number one Whatever. I don't know why I'm numbering these. Number one, set and setting. Number two, breathing. Number three, speed. Number four, you know, bringing my awareness, various parts of my body, decentralizing my awareness um, from strictly genital pleasure. And I do think about sex all the time still, you know, I'm not that young. I'm not a endless fountain of cum like I was 13 through 21, we'll call it. And I really don't know how to feel like I'm reading these Tao, this, this, these Taoism and books, they focus on Eastern philosophies. They focus on things like chi and they say for men, another reason that men are inferior in a way to women sexually is because men give up their chi in a sexual experience they cast their seed they we cast our creative force out into a woman or onto a woman or around a woman person and by giving up that chi like this they say like in france in French, um, the translation for orgasm for men is little death. I don't know if it's only for men, but it, the translation is petite uh, morir or something. It's like little death. And, the, and they use that translation as a means to justify like, yeah, giving up your uh, semen is like a little bit of death. 
They also correlate it with like if you're able to retain your semen, you actually uh, increase the longevity of your life. So it's kind of a big responsibility and it's a big discipline if you adopt that those beliefs, which I think there's something to it. Um, I don't want to overdo it so that if I do come, I'm now filled with guilt and now my day's ruined. Um, it's been a little bit like that. Like I've been extra down when I, when I do come because, um, you know, I want to stay healthy, but the guilt and the negative downward spiral that can happen in my mind, uh, also can make me unhealthy. So, you know, the balance of being easy on myself, but also forming a habit of discipline. And what, what is more of an act of discipline for a man than retaining their semen? You know, I think discipline starts with like the foods we, we ingest, you know, the sleep that we're getting, the water, water, sleep, food. But I think for men, a great discipline practice that you don't need to go anywhere, you don't need anyone else, it would be learning how to retain uh, your creative fluids. And I've gotten, um, you know, it's felt right at times, this concept of retaining, of discipline, of not just casting myself everywhere, like literally and figuratively. Just kind of like Jocko Willick, uh, Navy SEAL, I think, Marine maybe. He's kind of famous. He's on the Rogan podcast. Is like discipline equals freedom is his thing, basically. And there's definitely something to that. I've, I've learned more closer to my 30s. My, my early 20s, discipline seemed so far away. Start a bunch of new things. Not really stick with it. Even school, like I had to medicate myself to get through, like with Ad- with Adderall and prescription. You know, I was prescribed Adderall, and like that was like there was just a point where it's like, oh, I need to call the bank today. I better take an Adderall. It's like <laughs> that's just to highlight the lack of discipline I felt like I had, like. Which in some ways I had it, like I would work out religiously and, you know, I would commit to my physical practice quite a bit, yoga and powerlifting. And in that way I had discipline and I I did make it through school. I did graduate. I did. I just said I I had the help of like Adderall, um, which, you know, didn't really feel like my discipline felt like. So most recently, you know, 27, 28, cultivating like genuine discipline where I'll show up for practices daily. I'll show up for the guitar every day. I'll show up for seated meditation, breath work every day. I'll show up for jujitsu regularly. Um, and I wouldn't have it any other way. Like looking back, being dissatisfied with my lack of discipline 
feeling like a jack of all trades, um, master of none. Um, I think that's an important part, like of becoming your own person of becoming an adult is trying a bunch of things, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't. And, um, and then committing when you're ready. Some, you know, you, you hear the stories of like 13 year old scientist like discovers the new AIDS or something. It's like, wow, people are really doing things out there at a young age. Why haven't, why, you know, I don't know my purpose. I'm 25. Um, shouldn't I get it together by now? No. You know, maybe give your, give your, your whole twenties, you know, maybe just give your twenties to sampling, seeing as many things as you can do until you're kind of ready to commit to one. I mean, that's kind of what I did naturally, but I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I'm, I, you know, I, I lived till 30. I lived to a point where I'm starting to kind of define and carve out the things that I do truly like to do and I'm showing up for, and now I'm finding the ways to show up for those, you know, daily or weekly or monthly. And, uh, yeah, discipline is being cultivated a little bit later in life. Maybe that's a luxury I have, you know, is being able to cultivate discipline a little bit later. Um, and also maybe I'm just hard on myself. People have told me that. Cause like I would show up to, you know, sports practices every day in high school. It wasn't, see, it wasn't self propelled discipline though. I was doing things that I thought I had to do. And, you know, sometimes I didn't have a car or a, a way around. So if I was at school and my practice was until six or whatever, then I'd, I'd stay and just do the practice. And also you kind of have friends in high school that, just like a community can really help me show up to things in high school, you're immersed in community college, same thing. But when you leave kind of, when you leave college and all of a sudden you don't live around all of your friends, you can't just walk over. You don't, I don't leave my door open. People don't just come and visit me like they used to. Um, I have to start, I had to start cultivating that internal discipline. Like, okay, who am I when I'm by myself? Who, what do I want to be about? Because uh, watching just TV over and over again, smoking tons of joints, like, I don't have the mental fortitude for that. Like, I'm not mentally stable enough to just completely surrender to my pleasures. Um, maybe, no. No, I'm too antsy. I want more, you know. Um, I want a certain level of... Uh, notoriety or to be heard or to be valued. Uh, and the pain of not being valued or not feeling heard is big enough for me to actually like be disciplined in things now. Also, what's kind of helped me with discipline is like, not every day is going to be the best is like, particularly like with jujitsu, even with guitar, you know, like singing, same thing. Um, but there is something about showing up every day, for example, with the guitar, um, where those progress points, those progress markers like do show up and you're like, 
oh, it was worth it. Vindicated, validated. Like validation pops up um, through this daily return to a practice um, pretty often. So it kind of self-propels itself. Um, Like momentum works. Like things that are spiraling up will continue to spiral up, but then consequently things that are spiraling down can, can continue to spiral down. There's this awesome like... I don't know how awesome it is, but there's this experiment where they put mice in a single tube and basically they had to posture for position. They would move and and one mouse would inevitably claim the territory and push the other mouse out. And what they found, even if they gave one mouse an advantage so that the mouse would win, despite being smaller or less aggressive, the mouse that won would continue to win. And the mouse that lost would have a higher chance of continuing to lose. So there's this weird thing in the nature that we've been given where like momentum's real. And if you can like stuck in a negative spiral, if I can just get myself, sometimes it's like getting out just to go for a walk. It doesn't even have to be a run, you know, that small shift in momentum, or if I can just pick up my guitar if I'm in negative headspace, pissed at being let down or not being included or whatever it is, if I can just pick up my guitar and play an A minor, you know, that might be enough just to practice that day. And I might not be feeling completely good, but by showing up every day, uh, those validations do eventually come. So I'm able to, you know, build the momentum kind of going up. And and keep the momentum going for a while. Like uh, uh, an example of a negative kind of spiral that that happened is um, I love the quote like um, while you're celebrating your victory, your your demons are in the parking lot doing push-ups. It's like I'm never going to escape these bad ha- these habits that don't ultimately serve me. These negative parts of myself. Um, the best I can do is make choices to keep the momentum spiraling upward. So I did a cannabis fast, uh, I think 15 days. I talked about it on the last episode, 15 days. I did a cannabis fast. I ended up returning back to cannabis smoking and, and that day that I ended up just giving myself back to like the cannabis I must have watched like six hours of TV and just chilled. And you know what? That's okay to do sometimes as some people are probably thinking to themselves. But the next day, you know what was easier to do? The same thing. Sit, veg, smoke, and just chill. Like the spiral is real. You have to like get, I just have to reframe myself once I'm in the getting a negative spiral, as soon as I can catch it and just make a small alteration to be either spiraling back up or at least to stop the downward process. Thoughts are like this too. Maybe thoughts are the best place to start. 
like I was let down recently or I felt like I was let down recently and, uh, you know, downward spiral of not feeling worth things or anger, fantasizing about violence, like, um, and of course there's just no solid rule, like solid ground to stand on, especially in the mental scape. So I'm not saying you have to stop those thoughts. What I'm saying is like being aware that I'm on a negative spiral is a good first step. And maybe if I have to see that negative fantasy or that spiral, that emotion all the way through, I can create space for that in that time. But sometimes I could put a halt to that and just spiral up or stop the downward spiral. There's this book, Taking the Leap by Pima Chodron. Uh, who's like a Buddhist monk, like a woman Buddhist monk. And she talks about there's two wolves that live inside of us at any given moment, you know, good or evil. Sure. You can say yin or yang. And like, which one are you going to feed? Because whatever one you feed is the one that lives. So by feeding, uh, like that's the whole point about like journaling gratitude. It's like by journaling gratitude, am I going to feel grateful in every moment? No, sometimes I'm writing it and I don't feel it. I don't feel thankful. I'm almost doing it begrudgingly. But sometimes when I'm writing it, I really do feel thankful. And those moments come where I'm, you know, I tell myself I love myself and I actually feel like I do instead of just doing it as a practice. But by doing it as a practice, I'm feeding, I'm choosing to feed the, the wolf inside me that knows that I do ultimately love myself. Not in an, yeah, not in an overly narcissistic way, although that could be present at times. I'm definitely not perfect. I definitely value myself highly, even too highly sometimes, but like loving myself authentically. And, and I know I'm doing that when I can uh, then share that, like that love with others. Like that's what authentic, uh, self-love feels like is when, uh, when I'm doing it right, I can actually like have all the patience in the world, all the love for others too. I can read negative comments or whatever on, on my content lovingly, almost like just thankful <laughs> people are like, engaging with that stuff I'm creating. So that's, that's actually another exercise that I think is, is pretty helpful. I forget who's, uh, whose it is though. But, um, Simple, simple exercise, and you can do it by yourself. You can do it anywhere because it's in your head. But in my head, I'll basically inhale and say, I, I love myself. And then I'll just exhale. And sometimes I'll exhale and be like, one, I love myself. Two. And I'll do 10, I'll do 20, I'll do 30. Or sometimes I'll inhale, I love myself, and I'll exhale, thank you. Or something like that. And again, I don't mean it every time I, I do it. But 
one, it's just good to take conscious breaths in terms of like settling down my system. But also there are times I do genuinely feel it as a response to the exercise and therefore it's worth it. It's been validated. So I had this, I had the men over yesterday and, and we invite, we took, we did a, we made a little mushroom tea. So you take, so you take some mushrooms and even if you just steep it in hot water, um, it'll extract the, uh, psychedelic effects, psilocybin. Um, and you can drink the tea and experience the, the trip. And I like the tea because it's a little bit easier stomach wise uh, it seems to come on a little bit quicker for me. Um, but also you can put like some ginger in it. I think we did some like nettle. So it's just like an enjoyable tea. And uh, we did small doses over time. So I think we did like four shots over like three or four hours. And what... What I guess I can share about the experience is it just kind of put myself outside of myself where things became weird again, like things that are normal became weird. So like having a dog and like, she's like a ball of energy, right? She's just like a whole entire living being, like a ball of conscious ish energy, of course, I'm not going to do it justice, but, but even though as a ball of con- like of energy, she responds to me, I respond to her. We have a relationship. There's a familiarity. I'm like, how does, there's like a weird feeling of how does anything feel familiar? Like familiarity was both felt and like completely abstract of an idea at all at the same time. And, uh, it was a little far out outside myself, um, and then there's just like uh, mushrooms always seems to come around in the end. It always just seems to be like worth it at some point because there's just like a firm loving presence that I can sit in where I truly need nothing. Oh my God. One of the best feelings in the world is needing nothing, truly needing nothing being completely like satisfied with the present experience and just like waiting in those waters. Oh, yeah. Not needing to react to people's when they say something, not needing to laugh if it's not funny, not needing to respond. Here's one. If I'm sitting and someone's walking by, and there's enough space for them to get by without me moving. Just not moving. And it being okay. Not even faking like, oh. Like, like there's already plenty of space. Just a non like a good old-fashioned non-reaction. Oh, so good. So good to like, just be. Holy shit. And that's just like, 
I got like a glimpse of that. And I remember, I remember thinking as like, and this is kind of what got me out of the being and into needing or wanting or craving. I was like, Oh man, I just want to sit in this space for like ever for the rest of my life. Like I want this lesson, like for the rest of the times, which is grasping and like getting out of, out of the present. But I, you know, I was still able to kind of be in the pocket. Like it's no big deal. Like action when action and just being when, when being, um, fuck. We did some dancing. Some guys didn't even, you know, weren't dancers, but they responded to encouragement. Like I was like, yo, come on, let's, let's like, let's shake it off. Let's do a little dance, make a little love, get down tonight, take a bath together. And it was like, okay. So they got up and shook it. And we, we all like went around a little, did a little circle and just like shook that shit out, sweated up a little bit. Like we each picked a song, like a dance song pretty much. And like boogie, woogie, woogied. And I haven't been dancing now for, you know, pandemic times. I used to dance twice a week religiously, like contact improv and modern dance. And then I would also have a improvisational dance uh, practice with ecstatic dance. And that's all been going away. So like dancing being like so important to me, psycho psychologically, psychosomatic, I was going to say again, but I didn't want to say that word again. I think I said it too many times this episode. But yeah, it's been a super important practice. And I felt like basically like the tin man without any oil, like dancing kind of, and almost there's a, there's a role I play on the dance floor. And I don't know, no one asked me to do this, but if I sense that people are getting self-conscious or in their head, I will dance the ugliest possible. I I will it's almost an art form being so off rhythm and, and like purposely ugly, like movements, like, like it, it can free other people up. It could maybe send them more into judgment. I don't focus on that, but I, I like to think that by being the silliest one there, it allows other people to be silly and to play. And I think dancing is all about play, playing within yourself, within your own system, playing with others. If you are ready to do that. Um, so I do that. I try to be the, I'm okay being the silliest, stupidest looking one, um, in hopes of freeing other people up. That's my mission when doing that. And, uh, coincidentally, one of my improvisation teachers, KJ Holmes, if you're in New York and she's doing classes, like so worth it. Just like a solid elder in the dance community, crazy, like a Fox and a complete liberating experience to go to one of her classes. And, um, forgot what I was going to say. But I, I don't mind being the silliest one uh, in hopes to, to free people up. Oh, yeah. KJ Holmes, awesome dancer. She posted something about the goddess Durga. I think it's Hindu. Don't quote me on that. 
the goddess Durga is basically the entity that comes to people to initiate their spiritual or their, their spiritual liberation. So yesterday when I was dancing and I noticed there was like some discomfort with some of the guys, I was like, ah, Durga, you know, I do this thing where I'm stupid so that other people can be free to be stupid and, and express themselves however they want. Durga energy. A little bit of Durga. Throw a little Durga on it. And that's what I try to do. I try to throw a little Durga on it. And uh, maybe that's your role too. Maybe you can resonate with that. Or maybe not. Maybe you got to put, you know, maybe there's times you got to throw a little structure on it. Maybe, you know, I haven't been threatened by someone expressing themselves through dance yet, but I know that some females in the, um, you know, in certain dance communities, I shouldn't say females, unnecessary gendering, gendering when gendering isn't necessary. Some people have just been, you know, uncomfortable uh when pe- you know when people are really going at it maybe if you're like swinging your limbs violently and it seems out of control it doesn't mean it necessarily is out of control some of my favorite dancing is like drunken monk style like kind of stumbling around but there's there's always a balance to it so that i could stop if i'm almost going to run into someone or just like dip away um and maybe you shouldn't shrink for anyone, you know, maybe you should express, especially if you're at a dance event, you know, maybe shrinking for anyone is kind of a silly thing. Maybe not expressing yourself is ultimately the silliest. <sighs> yeah, these mushrooms are a good, just good medicine though. I can totally dig them. And yet, you know, there's always a challenge interlaced with it and i wonder what that is even physically like on a chemical and materialistic level it's like i ingest this mushrooms people say our response is like the similar response to like a poison so the reason we actually feel the mushrooms is because our bodies um reaction to a perceived threat or the perceived poison now poison is toxicity um is measured in like let's say parts per million parts per and mushrooms aren't toxic until i'd love to have the actual figure but parts per billion like there there's oh i'm sorry that's the wrong way uh you would need more mushrooms than you might be able to consume uh, for the, for its toxicity to take place. So poison and medicine are sometimes kind of interchangeable. I, I, I have to have the figures if I'm going to try to be all sciencey and shit. And I just don't have those figures. And I don't have a, a Jamie to look it up at the moment. Look up toxicity of psilocybin. I know it's very low. The toxicity of it but I, I think the response of a threat 
in the body or of a perceived threat in the body, it kind of creates this like disassociation or this like fight or flight something that just, it's kind of like dying. It's a little bit like I imagine like dying. Like there's, there's definitely elements of that. And even when things are going good, like towards the back end of the, of the mushrooms, you can, I can still kind of settle in to the experience and have that little like, Oh, dying is scary or scared or just scared feeling, you know? And knowing whether it's like the consciousness of mushrooms or how to make meaning of it all. I just, I just don't know. I, I, the more I do it, the less, the less I, I know about that. You know, for a while I like to make these medicines, these poisons, these, um, hallucinogenics, like it's very common to make ayahuasca into like a goddess, right? That's, that's a common story is like people will be visited by ayahuasca. She'll come in the form of a, like of a beautiful woman, of a serpent, hummingbird, um, and I think there's some value into like personifying phenomenon. So you might like, sometimes I think I personify phenomenon so that I can like better relate to it. So like, even though making like ayahuasca a woman entity deity that can visit you and you can interact with, it, it may just help us process. It may just help me process like the experience better. It may it not, like aliens and angels and like all these like mythological, like humanoids. Um, it, it just might help us process the unknown is by making a part of it known. And like, we know humans and what they look like, what they sound like, what they can feel like. So by making that part known, um, it might just be a helpful tool in like communicating with this like unknown mystery. So I guess my stance is I have no stance on that. I think it's, it's just like a helpful tool maybe. And, and I should say I don't get visions. You know, some people will have hallucinogenic experiences and I'll be like, it was just like this. Like I was seeing things like I'm seeing this, this world, like, and I haven't gotten that hardly ever. And I've had many, many ceremonies, many, many uh, experiences with psychedelics. And it's never been as vivid as like this visual reality. If anything, I'll get something in my mind's eye. And it won't be super clear. Um, it'll be like kind of my imagination is even in a sober reality. Like mental images and if i return to that mental image i can kind of create details and like talking about talking about it almost like kind of creates it and therefore i don't really know what the vision was to begin with i just kind of know the story i've told about it um but yeah i, I don't fully understand full visuals i have had things where like i've looked at tables or mountains or a forest from afar or water and it's been breathing or moving or like um 
undulating. So I, I guess in, in that sense, I've had visuals, but in terms of like fully entering another reality, communing with aliens or deities, um, it just hasn't been super clear. One of my first ayahuasca experiences in Peru, I kind of saw in my mind's eye, or I created a couple of entities. One of them was like, it almost looked like a statue like that you'd find in the Vatican. And he had like an archer's helmet on. And and then this is, I don't know if I'm, if I've created it or how much that, that moment was, but I remember there being like a green and gold trim, you know, like big archer's helmet, like almost Apollo from like the Hercules movie, the animated Hercules movie from Disney. <sighs> like, stone like statue proportions and like the eyes were just kind of like the same as the as the face and the body and then i remember like tilting my head back and it almost felt like like surgery was being performed on my brain or something as yeah, it's it's a tough experience because it's just a memory at this point. But I do remember telling people about that. Like, yeah, this is very clear, like Greek Romanish god, um, and they seem to want to work with me or on me. Um, and then I've had very potent non psychedelic experiences, um, just through meditation, through doing vipassana retreats, and through being in thailand at like buddhist monasteries and and meditating and also through breath work where i've had a recurring deity or thought come to me and i won't get into that too much because there's only so much value in sharing these psychedelic experiences um because it's just too difficult to put into words but this deity basically was uh orange robes asian buddhist monk who was named jesus that's all that's literally all i'll say about that came to me a few times jesus the buddhist monk they've been powerful experiences i don't know if it's maybe i'll unpack it a little bit now raised christian um, have a strong affiliation with Buddhism and I like the, the philosophies and principles of it. So maybe it's, it was my way of associating my experiences with my beliefs and, uh, healing certain aspects or, or just dealing with, uh, certain things at certain times. Cause usually when he came to my, my, my mental, um, it'd be coupled with like huge releases of crying. And again, this was not under the influence of anything besides meditation um, and stillness, but I would like huge emotional releases, huge feelings of like classic wisdoms, like love and uh, you know, compassion and forgiveness of myself and others. And like, so I don't know, don't know what that's about, but I appreciate Jesus, the Buddhist monk who's come and visited me, and he's, they're welcome anytime, really. Uh, they've proven quite 
kind and, and value, you know, nice and valuable. And haven't seen him for a while. Um, but yes, Jesus, if you're listening, you're welcome anytime. Thank you. Well, this just got, it got religious quick, but didn't mean to. I mean, I think we talked about a lot about sexuality, talked about men's groups. And I don't feel like I unpacked the so saying superiority and inferiority and putting it on, on men or, or women is just dangerous territory. And I didn't mean it like to put men down. It's just men have the challenge of working and practicing uh, sexual techniques that women just don't have to do um, in in this particular realm. Uh, women have all they need. Uh, they have an abundance of sexual energy. They get to maintain their chi. Um, whereas, you know, men uh, have, um, I don't want to say limited supply, but like, you know, once you come, uh, you need some time usually to recover and get back on it. Maybe, you know, not if you're listening and you're, uh, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27 ish, 28, 29, 30. Look, I don't know. Uh, I always, if you can come back to back to back, cool. Maybe go for it. Maybe. But, you know, I think most men, uh, it's, there's a vulnerability to sexuality. I think it needs to be acknowledged. Um, to have like a really awesome, trusting, uh, sexual partner and relationship. It's, it's been helping for me, you know, acknowledging my shortcomings so I can kind of practice, you know, moving forward from that. So yeah, we went over a lot today. A little bit of mushroom talk, a little bit of sex talk. Good one. Uh, thanks so much for being here. I hope this felt good for you. It felt good for me, and I appreciate you so much. Um, until next time, be well. Much love. <laughs>